The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. In today's episode, I will be discussing health savings accounts, how to invest in them, why you should, and some important considerations along the way. Before we get started, I want to welcome any new listeners to the podcast who may have found the show through our interview episode last week with The Science of Hitting. This is a good opportunity to remind all of our listeners that the goal of this podcast is to produce episodes that function as evergreen educational content. So we are focused on timeless content rather than timely content style episodes. So feel free to check out the archive of episodes that we have as they should still be useful listening for you. And I want to make one short request. You know, if you joined the podcast recently with my recent interview show, or if you're a long-time listener, I would really appreciate it if you consider leaving me a rating and review in your podcast player, whether that's the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or another vendor. Please just consider opening up the podcast app. You can either do it before or after this show and leave me a rating and review. Your ratings and reviews help me to grow the podcast audience and help more people with the content that I produce. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's dive into my show here, how to invest in a health savings account. We're going to begin with a brief discussion on what is a health savings account, and then I'll kind of go into some of the details here that you need to understand. A health savings account is specifically provided for by the United States government in the tax code, and so it's governed by the IRS which is the Internal Revenue Service here in the United States. So if you are one of my foreign listeners, this episode might be a little less useful to you than it would be for American listeners. Um, but it could be worth understanding kind of how tax-advantaged accounts work in the United States because you might find a similar benefit in your own country. Or if you happen to be working in the United States um, or living abroad, one of those type of things. So a health savings account is specifically created in the by the IRS um, and U.S. federal law such that workers in the U.S. can put aside money and savings and not pay taxes on that money. And this money is supposed to be dedicated for spending on health expenses throughout your life, um, and it can be both 
in the current year and also in future years. And what this does is it allows you to put aside a lot of money for health expenses. But the health savings account is unique because the terms actually allow you to save not just only for savings for health expenses, but you can also save for retirement. And there's some very nice beneficial features that a health savings account has that sets it sets it aside and different from, let's say, an IRA, whether a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or a 401k. In a lot of ways, health savings accounts are better than IRAs or 401ks for saving either for retirement or for health savings, health expenses. And I'm going to break it down in this episode of why you really need to understand that. Um, because you really should not be overlooking your health savings account if you have the opportunity to use one. Now, not everyone listening to this show has that opportunity, and that's because they are restricted. So just like every tax shelter that the U.S. government offers, they put restrictions on them because the government wants to incentivize you to save for your health expenses, and they want to incentivize you to save for retirement, but they don't want to incentivize you too much because they still want you to pay taxes and to owe the government money. Um, so that they can run the government. But when they do create tax shelters, even though they have restrictions, they can be very useful. And so we need to talk about some of the restrictions on this account. The primary restriction is that if you want to open a health savings account, if you want to deposit money and contribute to a health savings account, Your primary limitation is that you need to have a high deductible health plan. So a high deductible health plan is a subset of types of health insurance. So health insurance in the United States is different from health insurance in many countries around the world. I would assume most all countries in the world, but I don't have that broad of knowledge. But in the United States particularly, a majority of people receive their health insurance from not from the government, but instead from their employer. And this applies primarily for large employers, but most people tend to work for large employers or relatively small employers. But generally, if your employer has a little more than 50 employees, it would be pretty common for that employer to offer health insurance as a benefit, an employee benefit to their employees. And this came about basically during a time when employers were restricted from raising pay. In the United States, historically, during the 1900s, there was a period of time where employers could not afford to raise pay for their employees due to the way the laws and taxes were structured at the time, but they could increase benefits as a way to attract employees. And this is where, over time, you establish the system whereby corporations and employers began providing health insurance as a surplus benefit to their employees. And at first, this was done as a differentiation source. So the employers that had health insurance offers and offer of benefits would be able to get better employees. And eventually, it became much more common that most all employers would offer health insurance to their employees. Now, obviously, not every health insurance Not every employee in the United States has health insurance offered, um, especially if you're working as an individual contractor, then health insurance is not commonly provided and you, or, 
um, in a lot of retail or service establishments, health insurance isn't necessarily provided. Um, so you you definitely have to be aware of what benefits your company provides. But just want to mention that this is kind of how that's set up in the United States. But what you're going to see is whether you receive your health insurance from an employer or whether you receive it from the U.S. government or the state government or local government, if your employer is a government source, um, most people in the United States are going to receive that insurance from their employer. If they don't, then the U.S. government has established health exchanges where you can receive health insurance on an exchange located on the Internet where you can sign up and receive a health insurance plan. Now, those plans are broken into multiple types, um, and I'm not going to go into all of them, but basically you have a few different types of plans. One of those types is a high-deductible health plan, and a high-deductible health plan is a health insurance plan that has typically low insurance premiums and a high-deductible. And what a high deductible is, is basically the amount of money that you have to pay to cover your health expenses before the insurance company pays anything for that year. So if your deductible is $1,000, then that means that the first $1,000 of your health expenses for the year, you have to pay out of pocket before the health insurance company covers anything. Um, Another term that's common in health insurance that needs to be aware of is that you'll have... um, like a coinsurance rate on health deductible health plans. That might be 60%, 50%, or 90%. And so let's say the health the coinsurance rate is 50%. That means that after you hit your deductible, so let's say again our example was $1,000, um, but you have a bill for $2,000 and you've not spent anything on health expenses so far this year. Well, with a high deductible health plan of a $1,000 deductible, or not a high deductible, but just a health plan with a $1,000 deductible and a 50% coinsurance rate, then the first $1,000 you have to pay out of pocket. And then after that $1,000, every other dollar that's paid would be paid at 50%. So you would have to pay 50% of that amount and your company or your insurance company would pay the other 50%. So that means the second thousand dollars you'd pay 500, the insurance company would pay 500. If the coinsurance rate was 90%, then you would pay only a hundred dollars of the second thousand dollars and the insurance company would pay 90% of it or $900. Um, So obviously the higher your coinsurance rate, the better and the lower your deductible, the better. So Where did HSAs come in? Well, in an attempt to encourage employees and U.S. citizens to save for their own health expenses, basically to limit the need for the U.S. government to cover health expenses, they wanted to encourage people to save on their own to cover their expenses. What they did is they created this special health savings account. But they restricted it to only high deductible health plans because what they wanted you to do was to choose a plan whereby by having a high deductible, you're less likely to use health services. If you have to pay 100% of your expenses up front before you get uh, before you hit a deductible, then you're less likely to actually go to the doctor or um, get a needless surgery or something or you're going to shop around for price because now you're incentivized to worry about how much the health services cost. 
That's the idea. Whether it works in practice or not, that's debatable. Um, that's drifting into the realm of politics, which I'm loath to do on this podcast. So I'm sticking purely to the numbers and what this looks like as an investor. And so basically, they gave you an account to save because now that you have this high deductible, you need to be able to have money saved up for it. And so what they want to do is to encourage you to do that. And to do that, they gave you tax savings. Um, so with your high deductible health pl- savings account, what you can do is you can set aside a certain amount of money every year and to go into the account. And then that money is not taxed by the U.S. government. And it's not taxed when you put that money into the account. So just like a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k or a 403b, when you put your money into the savings account, that money is not taxed. So um, when let's say you have a 20% tax rate or something along those lines, and you're putting $1,000 into your health savings account, that's going to lower your tax bill by $200 for the year. That's a very valuable benefit because now not only are you saving an additional 20% that you would have had to send to the government, but now the government has encouraged you to save for your own expenses and they don't have to cover now the full $1,000. They're basically just taking out the amount that they would have taken in tax. Um, So that's very beneficial. But again, the other piece that the government always does is they want to limit how much money you can put into these tax shelters. Um, And basically what they do is they limit that amount on an annual basis. So if you're a single person for a savings health savings account, then your maximum contribution limit for the year is $3,500. And if you're a family or um, married couple, your maximum contribution limit is $7,000. And these are the 2019 limits. These limits are typically adjusted every year or every other year. So if you're listening to this in 2020 or a future year, consider checking the numbers. But for 2019, it's $3,500 as your limit for a single person and $7,000 a year for a family. With the idea that the more people, the more coverage you would need and the more expenses you're going to have for health. And so this is a relatively small account when you compare this to um, an IRA that might take $5,500 or $6,000 a year. It is smaller than an IRA or a Roth, so you need to take that into account. But the benefits can be very valuable because not only do you save money on putting the money in, just like a traditional IRA, you also save money in other ways. And so this is what The reason that the health savings account is something I need to discuss is because the the health savings account is the single best account that you can use to save for retirement and to save your money in for a long period of time because it has triple tax savings. So a health savings account combines the savings advantage of a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA. And what it's doing is you don't pay taxes when you put money into the account. You don't pay taxes on the growth of the account. And you don't have to pay taxes on when you pull the money out of the account as long as you're spending it on health expenses. And you can still, and if you don't spend it on health expenses, you can still pull the money out for non-health expenses at retirement age. 
So this is now giving you the benefits of a Roth IRA by allowing you to tax deferred growth, but also giving the benefit and tax-free withdrawals as long as you use it for health expenses. And it gives you the benefit of traditional IRA because you don't pay taxes when you put the money in. But there's an even better step on top of that. The traditional IRA the traditional IRA, when you put money into a traditional IRA, you don't pay federal income taxes, but you will still pay Social Security and Medicare taxes, or what we call payroll taxes, and that's the seven and a half, seven point six five percent, or fifteen percent, um, that is paid by you and your employer combined to the federal government to cover Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. If you put this the money into that account, you're actually saving on that as well. So if you were to put, um, so the taxes are for an individual person, 7.65% of your income or a little over 15% if you are self-employed for your payroll taxes. What that means is if you combine that with your federal income taxes and you say you have a federal income tax of 20% and that would have saved you $200 on every $1,000 that you put into this account, you're going to save an additional um, $76.50 when you put when you use a health savings account versus a traditional account. And so this is extra savings that is not going to be taxed as long as you have it withheld from your paycheck. So you're able to contribute money in a health savings account in two different ways. It can either be done with paycheck withdrawals, basically paycheck withholding, just like you would put into an IRA or a 401k, or a 401k rather, uh, not an IRA. And if you do it that way, you can avoid Social Security and Medicare taxes. But if you do it by just up, you know, writing a check to a brokerage like Fidelity or Vanguard, then you're still going to owe the Social Security and Medicare taxes. But this is the only account that I am aware of that you can use as a U.S. citizen, as someone working in the United States, to avoid Social Security and Medicare taxes, which is why the health savings account is the best account to save money for retirement in. Now, it's not your largest account, but it's the one that you should heavily consider doing so. So how does that work? I think it's important to think about, okay, it's valuable, but what does that mean? Well, you need to think how this plays into your overall plan. And what how you then have to think about is, okay, well, you now have opportunity costs. Do you save money in a bank account? Do you save money in a health savings account? Do you save money in a 401k? Do you save money in an IRA? Should that 401k and IRA be a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA? Roth 401k, traditional 401k. Um, And again, 401k and 403b are interchangeable. So if you're a government employee, just think about the 403b. Uh, If you work in the military, think about the plans that are offered with those. But think about it in those terms. These are opportunity costs. You can choose one or the other or both or some combination. So generally, you need to think through what is your priority order for putting this money in. Now, I believe the health savings account should be at the top of your list for being your priority because it's the single best account that you have. The only thing that should be a higher priority in your savings plan for future investments, basically what is the money that you're 
going to set aside for retirement, the first thing you need to do is deposit as much money as you can to get your match. And that can be a match either into your HSA or match into your 401k. Some employers offer matches on HSA deposits. Some employers offer matches on 401k deposits. You need to understand what your employer's benefits are and adjust accordingly. But if your employer offers a match on both a 401k and an HSA, get the HSA match first and then the 401k match. After you have any matches that you can, put the remainder of your money into an HSA. And then you go from there into a 401k or IRA. Depending upon uh, your tax bracket, you can discuss Roth or traditional. But the main point is that an HSA should be a higher priority than non-match 401k and IRA funds because it has all of the advantages of a traditional IRA and a lot of the advantages of a Roth IRA because you're going to get tax-deferred um growth because you're able to put the money into an account not pay taxes on it the tax growth will grow without taxes and withdrawal doesn't incur taxes either as long as you're spending it on health expenses which brings up a critical point that we have to discuss if you're going to invest in a health savings account documentation of your health expenses is critical you're going to need a good system in place so there are some websites that you can check out. There are some apps I think that people use where that can help you keep documentation on your health expenses. But I personally track them on my computer. I have an Excel file spreadsheet where I pull it up and I see the different things that I have. And what I do is on each expense that I that I have for health expenses. And so whether it's my, I have a bunch of set of columns and I record this data because what you need to be able to do is if you're audited on this account, you need to show your past history of expenses. So I record the date that I went to a doctor or a hospital or I got a service. I record the date. I have a separate column for the year because you're going to need to track your expenses based on the year that you have them. Um, and that's very important because you should, you'll need to match your withdrawals from the account with your expenses. I'm, I, I, mention the patients, whether it's myself, my spouse, my children, uh, put that into a column. I list the medical provider, the provider type. So the medical provider would be like the name of the practice or the name of the doctor. Provider type is like doctor's office, urgent care, hospital, pharmacy, dentist. Um, you could have eyeglass retailers, a lab for lab tests, anything like that. Um, and then I just have a description field where I talk about what it was that I was there for. This is useful to have so that when you're looking back on your expenses five or 10 years in the past and you're kind of going through them and, dis and looking at what they were, you know what it is and you have some description of what that was. But a, an important column now is the type of HSA qualified medical expense. The government has an IRS document and that document is IRS publication P502, medical, ex medical and dental expenses. And what it does is it outlines very clearly the types of medical expenses that you can claim in order to qualify for HSA um, spending. And so basically, if you want to qualify for all of the tax benefits that an HSA offers, you need to clearly document which expense category your line item 
goes to. So if you went to the doctor for um, a flu visit, then you can write, you know, doctor's visit to diagnose the flu, and that's a physical examination. And physical examinations are covered as HSA qualified medical expenses, at least based upon the 2018 or 2019 publications. Obviously, these could change over time. I would be surprised if physical examination ever didn't qualify, just like I would be surprised if stuff like hospital services never you know, failed to qualify or medicine failed to qualify. Those are all current qualified medical expenses, but you'll need to double check if this is years in the future when you're listening to this podcast episode. So after I list the type of qualified medical expense, I then put the total cost that I had to pay. Now, this is your out-of-pocket cost. It's not the billed cost because what will happen often is you might be billed for $200. You might get a discount of $100 because your health insurance negotiates a discount. And if you haven't hit your deductible yet, then maybe you you had to pay $100. Well, then you write $100 down. But if you've met your deductible and the insurance pays 90 and you pay 10, then you write 10 down. So even though the build rate was 200, the discount was 100, the insurance paid 90, you paid 10. So your out-of-pocket cost was 10. You put that into your spreadsheet. Now, the next thing is you need to just, you should document your payment date and just check on any records that you have and you'll want to save those records so what i like to do is i like to scan and digitize all of my files and i take that information and keep a dedicated copy of the explanation of benefits that comes from your insurance provider keep a copy of the invoice so the billing document that comes from the doctor's office that comes from the hospital what they say you owe them and then the your payment receipt so when you pay the doctor or you pay the hospital the receipt that you get and i like to save all three of those documents the guidance is unclear from the IRS based upon my reading on it of how much of those documents you need and what you record you really need. I think at least the invoice or receipt is necessary. You basically need to prove that you paid what you say you paid. Um, I am unsure if you need all three of those or part of those or anything. But for my purposes, to be safe, I'm saving all three of them. And those are the three types of documentation that I keep. Obviously, you can consult a lawyer um, if you want more information or some assurance that you're doing a good job keeping your records. But that's basically what I'm keeping. I keep a spreadsheet that documents all those things. And then I basically, the final column that I'm talking about is, you know, has it been reimbursed yet from the HSA? Because what I like to do is to really maximize my benefits. I make my purchases not directly with the debit card that came with my HSA, but I make it with a credit card and I get, you know, like 2% cash back from my credit card. And then I then reimburse myself from the HSA later. So it's basically a 2% discount on my cost that I like to have uh, because it's, it nets you out a benefit over the long term. And this can matter a lot if you're having a high medical bill, if you're paying an expense for $2,000 even if you have that money into in an HSA, you're going to net an extra $40 if you use a credit card first with a 2% cash back on it. So you, you pay it with a credit card for $2,000, you get $40 of cash back, and then you can reimburse yourself $2,000 from your HSA the next day. So it, if you manage it right, you can maximize your benefits of this health savings account. So that's the documentation I keep. I think it's really important because 
the way that you maximize your savings and your tax benefits of this tax shelter is you need to clearly document your health expenses because it's specifically designed for health expenses. Now, what if you don't have health expenses or what if you don't have a lot of health expenses? Well, what this account allows you to do, it allows you to build up cash in this and receive tax deferral savings for retirement. Now, how does that work? So the way this account works is you only get the Roth benefit of no future taxes when you spend the money on health expenses. But what the current law says, it does not say that you have to say, you don't have to withdraw the money or you don't have to spend the money the year that you put it in. Which this means is that even though your out-of-pocket limit might be $7,000 if you have a family, if you only have $2,000 of medical expenses each year, you're basically putting aside $5,000 every year. Now, this extra money can be invested and allowed to grow. And medical expenses for most people, not everyone, uh, but for most people tend to be the highest during retirement, tend to be highest during old age. And I've seen estimations that health expenses can exceed a quarter of a million dollars for the average person in old age. Well, it's nice because you can build up a quarter of a million dollars or more in your health savings account. And that portion of your retirement expenses, because health expenses is going to be a considerable portion of your retirement expenses, can be paid out of your health savings account. So you can use this account to save while you're young and healthy for when you're old and need health expenses. Now, obviously, there's caveats there. You're going to have some years where you're definitely just using the account. But if properly done and properly tracked and properly documented, you can treat this basically just like another retirement account. Now, let's say you don't have as many health expenses as the average person and you're relatively healthy even in old age. You can still withdraw the money and it'll function just like a traditional IRA or traditional 401k. You won't have paid taxes going in. You won't pay taxes on the growth during the growth phase. Um, And then if it's used after 65 for non-health expenses, you can still withdraw the money and you would just owe taxes then on the difference between your basis and the, the amount you withdraw. But that's a huge benefit because it means you can still use it like a retirement account. It's not changed from an account. You don't owe any penalties for not using it for health expenses if you wait till retirement. So you should see this as like a dual account. You can spend it on health expenses and then it's the best account that exists provided by the United States government Or you can just treat it like a retirement account if it turns out that you're very healthy and don't have a lot of health expenses. But the other thing is, the way these account are structured is you don't have to spend it only on your own health expenses. You can use it on the health expenses of your children while they're, I believe, under age 26, but maybe... um, older, but I'm assuming while they're covered on your plan, um, you can use it on to cover expenses for your spouse. Um, they're very versatile accounts, but because this is an account that you're using for expenses and you might be using for expenses throughout your life. Um, it's also very different from an IRA or a 401k. So with a 401k, typically you're not withdrawing any money until you're at least 65 or till you've reached traditional retirement age of 59 and a half or, or something where you can start withdrawing. So this means that every year, you know, as soon as you put $1,000 into the 401k, you can invest it because 
you're not going to touch that money or you shouldn't be touching that money. And you don't need to worry about the volatility in the account because, you know, if you're 30 and you put money in a 401k, there's no expectation that you might need to withdraw money at 32. Well, that's different for an HSA. If you're 30 and you put some money into your account, you might need that money next year or the year after or in three months. And this means that you need to really have a good cash buffer planning. And what this means to me, and you'll have to interpret it yourself, is that what I do for myself is I build up cash in this account before I begin investing the money. So just like you have an emergency fund in your bank or to to cover any expenses that you aren't planned for, you should have some sort of buffer or cash buffer in the HSA that can function as basically a secondary emergency fund specifically for health expenses. And what I like to do is have this cash buffer be at least one full year of total out-of-pocket expenses before you begin investing money. So let's talk about your maximum out-of-pocket expenses. So the way a high-deductible health plan is called is there's two different restrictions. In order to qualify as a high-deductible health plan, the health insurance plan has to have two qualities. Number one, it needs a minimum deductible, and it has to have a maximum out-of-pocket. So for 2019, the minimum deductible has to be $1,350 as a single person or $2,700 as a family. And the maximum out-of-pocket is $6,750 for a single person or $13,500 for a family. Now, those maximum out-of-pocket numbers are the federally limited number. So it does not mean that your plan actually has to have that number. Your number could be lower. Your number just can't be higher. So your plan won't qualify if the health insurance has a max out of pocket of $20,000. But it would qualify if the max out of pocket was $5,000 because it's below the federal maximum. So basically, there's a lot of room where these plans can fit. And you'll just have to look at your benefits to really understand it. But even in the worst case scenario, and this is so like, for instance, the health insurance that I qualify for is the max amount of pocket is not equal to the one that is the federal maximum guarantee. So we have a family health insurance and our max amount of pocket is lower than the 13500 guaranteed by the government. So our employer is offering us a benefit that's better than the one that the government would offer on its own. I would assume that's typical for many employers is that they're going to try and offer a plan that's better than the federal guaranteed one because you always have the option of going on to the exchanges if you were to want to seek insurance there. But when you look at the key part here is if you compare the contribution limit of $3,500, so we're going to talk about a single person for now, $3,500, and you compare it to the maximum out-of-pocket of $6,750, then this means that if you're put in the full contribution limit of $3,500, within less than two years, assuming you don't have a lot of health expenses, you could build up this cash buffer that I'm talking about in your health savings account. So, and that's relatively conservative, assuming you're pretty healthy, because 
some people are going to have lower numbers. So your maximum out of pocket might be $2,000. And if your contribution limit is 3,500, then you're going to reach your max out of pocket in about seven months instead of 24 months or 23 months. Um, and, and so it's going to depend upon the individual, but once you've met that amount, then just keep that amount as a cash buffer. And so as long as you're keeping that amount as a cash buffer in your account, then that will allow you to invest the remainder without having to worry about liquidity concerns. So if we think about it and say, okay, well, your max out of pocket is 5,000 a year. Um, and that means that, you know, if, as long as you have that 5,000 set, set aside, then you won't have to worry about selling stocks in a down market. And this is critical. As an investor, we talk about volatility all the time on this podcast. We talk about needing to think long term. Well, it can be dangerous to do that in a health savings account if you don't adequately plan with a cash buffer. And so that's what I'm trying to recommend that you do is you plan for a cash buffer here. And then you can invest beyond that because this account is incredibly powerful, but you need to make sure that your investments can go and not have to be sold at the wrong period of time. And so your stock selection should be able to be relatively similar to any stock selection you might make in an IRA. And so you you can you don't have to worry about short-term capital gains. You don't have to worry about long-term capital gains. So you can buy stuff with incredibly high dividend yields or real estate investment trusts, anything that's because you're not going to have to worry about the taxes in the short term. The only difference I think you need to be aware of is if you're comparing um, an IRA to an HSA is that you might want to limit or be hesitant to purchase um, super liquid stocks in the HSA just in case you have multiple years in a row where you max out your out-of-pocket expenses, then you might want to have the flexibility to liquidate a stock relatively easy. And so I really enjoy buying illiquid stocks. I think they offer a lot of benefits in terms of your potential return. But for my HSA, I kind of, I, I like to buy the more liquid stocks for my portfolio in my HSA because it just gives me a little bit more ability to sleep at night and not worry as much about potentially having to sell them because I have a health expense. That's unexpected. If you want to be even more conservative, um, if you expect to have a lot of health expenses in the short term, if you know you're having children or something, or you currently have a long-term illness, then maybe it makes sense to have up to two full years of your maximum out-of-pocket expenses as your cash buffer. But again, that's super conservative. You need to judge where you are in life to determine whether a year is more applicable. Um, but I think at, if you get that one year of full out-of-pocket expenses, then that should help you be comfortable for that. But the two years is really trying to cover you for the scenario where you know, if you got hurt in December, maxed out your expenses, and then you had expenses continue into January, you could max out two years in a row for one event. Um, so there is potential there where maybe having two full years of maximum out-of-pocket expenses before investing in the stocks could be relevant. But these are just things you want to think about. But the main thing is if you want to invest in a health savings account, I think it's a great idea. I think this is a, something that I have done be, and it's been a way where I've been able to differentiate myself and 
create a lot of extra buffer so that if my health expenses rise and I've had a lot of health expenses this year, then I'm able to cover them without having to go to my emergency fund. I don't have to pull any money from my emergency fund. I'm able to pull it from my health savings account because before I invested in it, I had this cash buffer. And I just maintain that cash buffer over time. So if I'm drawing it down, then instead of investing in new stocks, I'll just take my dividends, let it help build up the cash buffer in combination with my new monthly deposits along the way. But... I'm very hopeful that by the time retirement comes around, by the time I'm in my 60s and I have higher health expenses, I could have built up a buffer here of maybe a quarter million dollars or more in my health savings account that can cover a lifetime of health expenses and will basically eliminate the risk and stress on my other retirement investments because I'm covering the health portion of retirement solely from my health savings account. So I hope this episode has been helpful. I think I've covered a lot of the areas that I wanted to touch on. If you have any questions, feel free to, again, you can send me an email at trey at diyinvesting.org or leave a comment in the show notes on the website and you can reach those show notes at diyinvesting.org slash episode 40. Um, you know, in summary, a health savings account is the best tax advantaged account currently available for workers in the United States. You know, it's important to have a plan and understand how to invest your HSA money and maximize the benefits of this very unique and beneficial tax shelter. Um, tax shelters are ways that can save you money. They can save you from having to send your money to the government and instead leave it with you where you're going to make good use of it. So I encourage you to learn what you can about health savings account. And I hope this gives you the insight that you need to start investing with your health savings account because I think it can be incredibly beneficial for you to do so. So thank you for listening to this podcast. Reminder, this is a listener-supported podcast. So if you've gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at DIYinvesting.org slash P-A-T-R-O-N. Um, contributions as low as $5 a month for access to my personal investing research that I publish on my website. Your financial support is what allows me to continue creating this free investment content without any advertisements. Another thing, if you can't support the show financially, I would really appreciate a rating and review. Your ratings and reviews help me to grow the podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.